Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. We maintain the peace through our strength. Weakness only invites aggression. Trust, but verify. Well, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. America's best days are yet to come. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, Roger is joined by the director of the Center for Presidential Transition, David Marchick. Mr. Marchick spent 12 years at the Carlyle Group, private equity company, and most recently served as managing director and global head of external affairs as a member of Carlyle's management committee. He filled several senior positions in the Clinton administration, and he's also currently an adjunct professor at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth and serves as senior of counsel at the firm Covington and Berlin. Roger and David discuss the history, importance, and practice of presidential transitions. If you enjoy the conversation, remember to subscribe to Reaganism wherever you listen to podcasts, and we appreciate you listening to the show. Thanks. David Marchick, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Let me just say something about you before we get started, which is I've known you for a long time. You're one of the most talented people I know. I tried to recruit you several times unsuccessfully. And the other thing I'd say about you is you have this great intellectual curiosity and you're one of the few people that I can talk to about foreign policy, politics, Jewish history, and high school basketball, basketball. including (laughs) girls basketball. So the combination of national security and girls basketball, high school basketball trivia is not a usual combination, but it's a tribute to Roger Zakheim. So thanks for having me. Dave, that was, uh, that was very kind and generous. When you told me you were going to say something to start, I was committed to editing it out, but I'm now committed to leaving this in and sending it to my entire family. This is, this is great. Um, well, a great way well, to you're start one of the, the great show for me. Jewish sports heroes of you know high school basketball. So it's a short list, but uh, it's not very long or competitive. Yes. <laughs> um, although uh, Amari Stoudemire, um, this is not known, but he he's he's uh, Adam Sandler has to update his song because he's Jewish now. Um, I know. I also you know we claim Rod Carew as well. So that's, uh, that, well, yeah. that that now we're now we've somehow managed to take our podcast to the. Adam Sandler Hanukkah song. So we've been very successful in a, in a, in a short, in a start here. Um, but Dave, uh, as you know, we, we've known each other a long time and many different iterations, uh, uh, started off as a, a mentor and, and now someone I count as a friend, um, which are reasons uh, to have you on the show, but not the reason why you're on today. Uh, the reason why you're on today is because of the many things you've done. Uh, the thing that you're busy with now is that you are a director of a very interesting uh, entity uh, called the Center for Presidential Transitions. And we find ourselves right now uh, in this uh, interregnum, do we not? It's definitely an interregnum. I love that word. And I hope we can use it throughout the, uh, the show. <laughs> um, so more on the center in just a moment. But first, uh, we need to talk about your background. So. Uh, Dave, you and I met each other when uh, you were a, uh, a partner at the law firm Covington and Burling, really working on interesting matters of national security and foreign investment in the United States, uh, the so-called CFIUS 
uh, process. I was uh, a lowly staffer on the Armed Services Committee that had this weird portfolio about how we deal with foreign investment and national security. And then you went on, that was after you had served in the Clinton administration, uh, where you worked on those matters at, at Treasury, and then you were also in the State Department. And then after your time uh, practicing law and billing the world in increments of six minutes, you went to uh, an even more profitable uh, private sector um, uh, job, which was in Carlisle, where you worked on just really interesting uh, transactions, uh, M&A and, and otherwise, for that uh, uh, amazing private equity firm. And then you left all of that, and now you find yourself uh, lecturing, I think, at Dartmouth Business School and, and leading the center. Um, tell us a little bit about your journey and, and how that all stitches together. Of course, throughout being a huge sports enthusiast and uh, being one of the uh, uh, biggest experts in Washington, D.C. sports, particularly basketball. Well, really high school basketball, but um, <laughs> so there's no stitching together. Um, I originally thought I was going to be an engineer when I was in college and I took uh, computer science and I realized I was not very good. So I became a history major and I fell in love with politics. I worked on the 92 Clinton campaign. And, and you were at GW, a, right? So I started at Hastings Law School in San Francisco, but I got involved in the Clinton campaign. And if you ask me, I took a leave of absence. If you ask my mom, I dropped out of law school. So <laughs> when I was in the White House, I said, I should probably go back to law school. So I, I finished up my degree at night at GW. and. I was in the top third of the bottom half of the class there. So I, I had, I left, you know. Um, Recipe for success, hold on, but what, exactly. what, was it, um, was law school so miserable or were you so excited about Bill Clinton? Uh, both, I didn't love law school. I loved undergrad and I loved graduate school. I, I found law school just a grind and I was working 80 or 90 hours a week and so doing that at the White House and studying law school at night was not really a recipe. I, I picked GW because it was three blocks away from the White House and I could basically run to class and then go back to work. And so, you know, it was, that was a pretty tough time. I was single, I had no money. I was living in a basement apartment and I basically just worked all the time. So, you know, what, I got what, through. What were you doing in the White House at that time? What was your position? So I was working on NAFTA and the WTO. I was working on trade issues and that's one of the, you know, the areas where I started working closely with Republicans, because as you recall, um, NAFTA was passed by 230 votes. A majority of those votes were Republicans, 134 of the House uh, Republicans and 100 in uh, Democrats. So, you know, Clinton was pushing it, but Dick Gephardt was the biggest opponent. He was the, the House Majority Leader. And then the WTO was a much more bipartisan uh, agreement. We had you know, strong support in the House and we got 76 votes in the Senate. So um, that's what I was doing and I was studying at, at night and I actually took a trade class at GW while I was working on trade in the White House, which was kind of interesting. Right, which is probably a class he could have taught. It was probably entertaining to hear the professors opine on, on the policies that you're kind of seeing how the sausage was actually being made. Exactly. Um, so go ahead. So basically there's no stitching together. I, I've kind of qualified, I've done a bunch of different jobs that I'm not qualified for. So, you know, in the Clinton administration, I was pretty young and I was a deputy secretary at Commerce and, you know, I, I really didn't know what I was doing. Um, and then- 
when I went to Carlisle, it was the same thing. I really had no background in finance or private equity. And luckily, David Rubenstein, who's really a mentor to me, and he had confidence in me, and I, I had a great experience there. And then after 12 years of being on a plane, uh, and, you know, I just... Yeah, pretty brutal, the world of private equity, right? I mean, that's a... a it was brutal. For somebody with no experience, you certainly uh, did quite well. Uh, 12 years, that's a good run. And, and, and it was a good run. I, I, I mean, but, you know, the, it was wonderful. It's a great firm. I had a great experience. I learned a lot. Um, you know, I took something like 160 or 170 trips abroad, um, which is tough on your body, tough on your family. And um, I remember there was this moment where I was, I think I was in Singapore, and it was like this Bill Murray moment of being kind of bummed when you're overseas by yourself, although Scarlett Johansson didn't show up. And I wrote my son this kind of heartfelt email about how much I love him and I missed him and I was sorry I was missing some event and I was sorry I was traveling so much. And he sent me a nice note back asking me where the TV clicker was. And I said, <laughs> I should probably do something different. Maybe, maybe, maybe shift that a bit. Um, that's, so I left um, and I basically just wanted to do nonprofit work and kind of and policy and uh, public service. And so that's what I hope to do for the rest of my career. Um, all right, so we're going to talk about that in a minute, but uh, there were some really uh, interesting uh, Reagan connections in, in, in your attempt to stitch your extraordinary set of, of professional experiences. Uh, the first one I'll start with is, is, is Carlisle, because um, Carlisle really emerged on the scene um, after the Carter administration, beginning of the Reagan administration, as far as I recall, and then, if, and then after the Reagan administration, uh, Reagan National Security Advisor, Deputy Secretary of Defense, uh, Frank Carlucci, Secretary uh, one of the yeah, yeah Secretary of Defense, um, um, was one of the first or early uh, uh, members of the Carlisle team. So, was there was there a lasting Reagan imprint, or was that just one uh, one person at one time? So, um, David Rubenstein, who's really a genius, um, and he shares the same trait, which is he did a bunch of jobs that he wasn't qualified for. He was a lawyer and a policy person. He said, I'm going to start a private equity firm. He had no business doing that, but he just is so smart and creative. So he basically found people that were actually qualified and he put them together and he built this incredible firm. Um, he basically decided that he wanted he to bring served, in- He served in the Carter administration, right? He was the deputy domestic policy advisor under Carter. When he right. left Reagan you know, won and he couldn't find a job. So he went to a law firm and he didn't really love it and wasn't great at it. And so he basically said, I'm going to start this business. And he found people that were investors. So he wanted to find someone that was prominent that could raise the prestige of it. And he decided to uh, go to Frank Carlucci, who people forget actually was a business person and started businesses. Right. Um, you know, he was an agency officer and, and, you know, did a lot in Portugal, um, but he also built businesses and so did Dick Darman. Um, and so David brought in, you know, Carlucci, who was the chairman of the board. He brought in Jim Baker. He brought in Dick Darman. I didn't realize Jim Baker had association there. I missed that. Jim Baker was there. In fact, my, old, my closest tied to greatness was that when I joined Carlisle, I sat in his old office. Um, so it was a corner office on the second floor overlooking a hot dog. And, and as we'll discuss, Jim Baker knew uh, 
which offices mattered most. Absolutely. So, but then when Bush was elected, George W. Bush, there was just terrible press and a kind of conspiracy theory about Carlisle, um, none of which was true. And basically having all these kind of former political people became a liability. And so David cautiously and, and you know, graciously asked them to leave. And actually I talked to Jim Baker about this a little while ago and he said, I remember the day when it was time and David came in and he wouldn't look me in the eye. He just looked down at his feet and he was kind of fumbling around. And I said to David, I realized this become a political liability and I'm happy to retire. And so he kind of put David out of his awkward misery of that difficult conversation. Um, it's amazing, and, Baker, always the chief of staff, he can even dismiss himself. He is unbelievable. And at age 90, he is uh, sharper than I am at age 54. We're gonna talk about the, the recent uh, uh, biography of, of, of uh, Secretary Baker. Um, the other thing that uh, had a Reagan connection that you were hitting on in, in, in your personal uh, professional journey um, is NAFTA because it has its roots in Reagan. Reagan actually, uh, I, I think, planted the seeds for NAFTA. Um, there's a kind of various or warring narratives, I guess I should say, in terms of Reagan's orientation towards free trade. Uh, the NAFTA piece certainly reinforces that he was a free trader, but uh, certain uh, trade policies vis-a-vis -vis Japan, especially, you know, reinforces the view that uh, he wasn't an ardent or, or pure free trader. Um, but David, more about well, Reagan, Reagan, actually, you know, he did the U S Canada free trade agreement. Right. And I believe the U S Israel free trade agreement was also negotiated under Reagan. And then, um, he strengthened ties with Mexico, um, which was always a very, very kind of difficult neighbor. They found us difficult as well. Um, but he really launched that George Bush accelerated that and actually negotiated it. And then Clinton, you know, changed the agreement and then got it through the Congress. Um, and so, I mean, again, one of the things that I did when I was at the White House was I worked with all these former Republican officials because we had to get Republican votes. So we had Jim Baker and George Shultz and all these former Reagan officials traipsing through the White House to give pro-NAFTA speeches because we were trying to promote we're trying to get 218 votes and we the only path to do that was through Republicans. And so I remember joking with Carla Hills that she spent more time at the White House under Clinton than she did under Bush. And <laughs> right. so, um, you know, it, it was really a great experience that I got to meet all these wonderful luminaries of, of it's, the Reagan. It's remarkable as you describe that, because I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about the next question here and is, is the question, what has happened uh, to Washington and partisanship and has changed so much that, you know, you could have uh, Democrats and Republicans working together in the way you've described, or is the question, what has happened to the country and uh, free trade where leadership in both the Republican and Democratic Party are quite skeptical about the value proposition of, of free trade and uh, what it's done to the American worker, the American family, uh, American manufacturing, the list goes on. Uh, as you reflect on it, and then we'll, we'll get to presidential transitions, I promise, um, but your experience here is so interesting given you know, current events and, and, and policy. Um, 
do you think um, free trade uh, that you know was certainly advanced by NAFTA and what you worked on um, has still done more good than bad, or has the way events have played out uh, make you reconsider some of uh, the way you looked at free trade back when you were that White House staffer trying to get the votes? So I still believe that that open trade has created more good than bad, but there are some negative consequences. Um, I think that it certainly, you know, has had a, an impact on lower skilled, uh, less educated workers um, in a negative way. You know, if you take the auto industry, for example, you know, a significant part of the auto industry has moved offshore, the auto parts industry, textiles, et cetera. My gut is that that would have happened regardless and perhaps trade agreements had an impact on that. Um, you know, if you look at the textile industry, it started in the Northeast and then moved to the Southern part of the United States and then it moved to Mexico, then it moved to China. Now China is too expensive and it's moved to Bangladesh, Cambodia and Vietnam. And so, you know, some of that movement has happened without trade agreements. Obviously we don't have free trade agreements with, with Bangladesh or, or Cambodia. Um, but it's had an impact. I also think that the politics, I think you know, those involved in free trade have done a terrible job of explaining it. And then I think there are some countries like China that, that don't observe the rules. And it's hard to support a system, a rules-based system when certain players don't play by the rules. And so you know, I think that the trade equation has become much more complicated than it was when, when I was in government. So uh, we've just spent a good 20 minutes showing your policy prowess, uh, you know, uh, government experience, international lawyer, intellectual, uh, international uh, businessman, and now you lead the Center for Presidential Transition. What is that and what are you doing? So the Center for Presidential Transition is part of the Partnership for Public Service. It's an effective government organization created by a, a really talented guy named Max Steyer about 20 years ago. And Max had this vision of creating an advocacy and nonprofit uh, organization to advance the effectiveness of government. Um, and maybe there's a Reagan link here too, because Reagan was very focused on making government more effective, not just bigger. And or not you know, just I think smaller. that <laughs> not just smaller, yeah. He, he wanted to make it smaller. But I think that you know, Max is focused on effectiveness in government. And in 2008, someone said to him, well, you should get involved in transition. He basically said, that's a great idea because the launch of an administration and the success of that administration is highly correlated with the success of their transition. And so therefore a good and successful transition is essential for an effective government. And that's what I'm doing. So I'm running this project. We've worked with three constituencies. We worked at the Trump White House We've worked with the career officials across the government who were responsible for transition planning. And we've worked closely with the Biden team throughout the process. So you're this, in addition, and there's a public service component or a public education component because you're out there, you're doing you know, podcasts and putting information out there as well. Um, but, but actually you're helping the players involved and, and, and they're going to you for your expertise in terms of how do we do this? Because you kind of come into government, you know what you want to do in a particular policy area, but how you transition from 
one administration to another is probably not something that most government officials think about or know about. They don't. And again, if you go back to Reagan, he had a very smooth transition. Ed Meese ran the transition team, but there was no playbook. Carter was the first modern president to actually allocate resources, campaign resources and staff to a transition. But he, and that's positive, but he did one thing wrong, which was he didn't tell the campaign that he established a transition team. And so a mutual friend of ours, Stu Eisenstadt, who was running policy, he didn't even know the transition team existed until about two weeks before the election. And he started seeing stories in the press about Carter's planning this and Carter's plan for that. And he went to Carter and said, where's this stuff coming from? And Carter said, oh, we have 50 people working on a transition. And Stu said, what? And he said, oh yeah. And there was just a huge clash. And that, Stu would say, hurt, imperiled the first year of the Carter administration. So an example of a launch that uh, obviously wasn't, the transition to go well, so it didn't launch quite, you know, it was, well. very, it was very poor. And Stu would say it hurt at least the first year of the administration, if not more. Hmm. Yeah, it reminds me of my favorite uh, uh, Reagan transition story, which I'm sure you know about. I came upon it because uh, I was very enthusiastic, you may recall, working on the Romney transition team uh, up until election day when we we're certain that Romney would be president-elect Romney. Uh, and I was uh, doing defense work and looking at the writings of former defense secretaries and Casper uh, Weinberger has, in his memoir, has great treatment of the Reagan transition team. I don't know if, if you know this one, but essentially uh, Reagan names him and uh, the Reagan transition team comes in and kind of throws on his desk uh, their whole plan that they put together for the Reagan Defense Department and give it to the you know, Reagan nominee Secretary of Defense in a very arrogant and uh, manner. And uh, Weinberger essentially uh, picked up the transition book, looked at them, threw it in the garbage and said, I'll take it from here. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's- Not a successful- Transitions have traditionally been not well done. Right. And what we're trying to do uh, is take a lot of the work, for example, Romney, you know, Mike Levitt, Chris Liddell, yeah. you and Jim Talent on the defense side um, did a really good job. Obviously Romney didn't win, but then the, the Romney team created systems and structure and then they memorialized it in a book that Mike and Chris Liddell wrote called the Romney Readiness Project. And that created a playbook. So when you're in government, as you know, all of your documents and your organizational structure, all that's archived. And so the people that come in after you, they can benefit from that expertise, your successes and your mistakes. There's nothing in transition until we came along because it's, it's not government work. Basically a transition is a private entity. There's no government records keeping. There's no, uh, there's no historical records. So we basically started in 2008 to create this kind of center of expertise and it's gotten better and better and better. And actually the Romney team, which you were a big part of, deserves enormous credit for advancing the art of transitions and creating really good organizational structure. And, and you know, Mike Levitt, in my view, is one of the, the real gurus of transition. He led the Romney transition. Yeah, oh yeah, I remember uh, governor coming in and, and you're right, he really had great structure and that, that helps everybody involved. Although it was, it was always out there. Maybe this is, you know, for sure, you, you hit on this with your anecdote about Carter and Stu Eisenstadt. It was always like, okay, well, what was gonna happen once the campaign met the transition? So until election day, both worlds could kind of coexist and one doesn't have to worry about the other. 
but there was always going to be that that moment where the two would have to meet and no one was quite sure what that would look like. Um, am I right that that's probably that's, one of the that's first? The, so yes, so I think Mike and the Romney team did the best job to that point of creating the structure, systems, project management, planning, um, and actually coordinating with the campaign. So he would go up to Boston once a week and spend a full day with, uh, yeah. with the campaign manager uh, and he would spend an hour a week with Romney on it. But the question in my mind, which I've talked to Mike about a lot, uh, is was the structure he created so big that it would have created a clash between the campaign and the transition? Because I think that the transition had over 500 people and really, really senior people that were ready to go in the government. But the campaign also had people that were working on it. And you know, Mike's one of Mike's great quotes is that the campaign traditionally looks at the transition as the people that are going to hand out the spoils of their victory. Right. And the transition team looks at the campaign as basically saying, oh, they're just political hacks and we know how to govern. So just we'll take it from here. And there's inevitably a clash. It's one of the great innovations of the Biden transition team, which they've really solved that problem in a positive way. Well, tell us about that, because I, I want to hear what the Biden team is doing, at least, at least to... Uh, uh, advance a successful transition. And then we'll go a little bit of transition history and get some of the uh, uh, most successful uh, and least successful uh, transitions from your, your mind. But first, tell us what, what's happening with Biden-Harris uh, and what, you know, why you think it sounds like uh, they have a, a good approach. So um, Biden had a huge advantage, which is he's the most experienced person ever to become president. I think George H.W. Bush, prior to this, had that experience. That's a bold statement. I got to think about that. Most experienced person ever to become president. Yeah. Why I mean, do you say he, that? Just years in the he Senate. Started, and... He started in government in 1972. I think you're 40, you're how old? 43. Wow, good. 43. Okay. So he started as a senator three years before you were born. Uh, yep. Okay. Well, a little more, but yeah. His, you were born in? Oh, 77, so. 77, right, okay, yeah. so five years. Okay, so, and then Biden's most trusted advisor is a fellow named Ted Kaufman. Ted was, uh, he's an engineer and a planner, and he started working for Joe Biden in 1972. Ted was working for the DuPont Corporation and Biden's sister said, hey, will you come help me with this campaign? And he met with Biden and said, I'll help you, but you can't win. And then Biden won by 3,600 votes. So Ted was his chief of staff. He's his best friend. He's his confidant. And he's a transition expert. So he um, worked on the 08 transition. He was Biden's representative. And then he succeeded Biden in the Senate, where he focused on transitions and was responsible for two amendments to the Presidential Transition Act. Hmm. And one of them is actually named the Edward M. Kaufman and Mike Levitt Transition Improvements Act because Mike Levitt and Ted Kaufman are seeing these two transition gurus. So Ted started working on the transition very, very early. Uh, and he was a student of transitions. And so he anticipated all the problems. He studied all the problems that other transitions have had, like the one that you and I just talked about with Romney. How do you avoid this clash? Sure. Um, and he basically created a system 
And then he brought in phenomenal people, Jeff Zients, Johannes Abraham. Uh, they've built, I think, the best ever transition team. Um, and it's the most experienced, the deepest, uh, and the most systematized. So how's it and playing out? Because we find ourselves right now where, you know, the rubber hits the road, right? They, um, they have the campaign is now interacting with transition. You got the announcements of all the uh, you know, many of, of, of the nominees for cabinet positions. You know, what are you seeing that's really working that kind of where the theory now is being put into practice and it's you know, yielding the results that you would give it a good grade? So um, I think that they, first of all, they solved the campaign transition team interaction. They had regular dialogue. They basically created lines of communication between all the core parts of the campaign and the transition throughout. So on the policy side, Jake Sullivan would coordinate with Avril Haynes between the campaign and the transition on, on foreign policy. Um, and the lawyers on the campaign would coordinate with the lawyers on the transition. And so Anita Dunn with the, trans, with the campaign was on the transition board and she and Ted spoke daily, weekly, you know. So, and they've rolled out their nominees at a very fast pace. Um, Obama, has the record for, for naming the most people during the interregnum. Uh, he named 42. He had 25 pre-inauguration uh, confirmation hearings. And I think Biden will beat that. Uh, so he also- oh, so, so the measure there for one measure for transition is how many of the people that you've uh, announced and intention to nominate actually have uh, okay, you know, not uh, their confirmation hearings and vote. <clears throat> by inauguration day. That's, that's the key metric, isn't it? It's one. I'll give you another thing, which is a Reagan innovation. So Jimmy Carter is the first president to have a modern transition effort, but he did the opposite of what Nixon did. Nixon had a powerful chief of staff, H.R. Haldeman, who went to jail. So Carter said, I don't want that. So he had no chief of staff for two years and that created chaos. Reagan said, I don't want what Carter did. So what did he do? The day after the election, he named James A. Baker III as his chief of staff. And he basically said, Baker, you staff the White House, me, she ran the transition, you staff the government. That's an innovation. The Biden team did the same. So the very, very early, Biden named Ron Klain. Ron Klain is an experienced pro. He's off and running, building the White House staff. They've named a lot of White House staff people, you know, the, the transition, which was run by Jeff Science and Johannes Abraham, they're working on the cabinet, the sub cabinet, and they're off and running and doing a really good job. Um, and so, you know, they're, they're very efficient and organized and they've done a, a really fantastic, fantastic so, job. So you mentioned the uh, uh, Reagan's innovation when it comes to transitions and, and, and selecting Baker as, as the chief of staff. Um, Let's get into the history of transitions with that. We'll, okay. we'll start with that one because that's quite interesting. Baker, of course, uh, spent uh, 19, much of 1980 and then also 1976 running against Reagan, right? He, he ran the, the Ford uh, campaign uh, when Ford was a nominee, but it was obviously contested by Reagan. And then 80, uh, he was running the Bush campaign, yet Reagan chose him. Um, that was one that a lot disappointed a lot of uh, Reagan revolutionaries, right? So how, you've known as a success. It ultimately worked out. He was viewed as a, a great chief of staff. 
you had this odd arrangement of the troika, uh, you know, split up between mostly between um, um, you know Baker and um, and Meese, like Meese and Meese, yeah. So actually, I've talked to Jim Baker about this, and um, I think it's a sign of Reagan's confidence. In the same way that Barack Obama could bring on Hillary Clinton as Secretary of State, and the same way that Abraham Lincoln could appoint a team of rivals, Reagan had this supreme confidence and basically said, I want to get the best person to be my chief of staff, and I don't care if they're from California, if they're a conservative, I want someone that gets stuff done. And so actually it was uh, Mike Deaver and Stu Spencer that launched this idea because Baker was not a Reaganite. And so he was involved in the campaign after Bush dropped out, but then um, Spencer and Deese said, let's get Baker on the campaign plane for a couple of weeks and see if they like each other. And it worked out well. So Reagan, the night of the election said, come see me tomorrow morning. And Baker's kind of jaw dropped a little. He went home that night, talked to his wife, um, and she started crying because she said, I know this means we have to move to Washington. And so Baker the next morning asked him to be his chief of staff. And he said, but I want you to do one thing. And he said, what's that, sir? He said, I want you to make it right with Meese. Meese was, and Meese was his chief of staff as governor. And he was, you know, the one who was responsible for the policy. I mean, really had this close relationship with, with President Reagan, but folks didn't think Ed Meese would be uh, the most effective chief of staff. And he was the transition the chairman. So Ed Meese expected to be chief of staff and everybody expected him to be chief of staff. So in a classic James Baker manner, he sat down the next morning with Ed Meese at the Century Plaza Hotel in Los Angeles. I love this stuff. I love all this history. It's just great. Uh, and he brought a piece of paper. On one side of the piece of paper said J-A-B, James A. Baker. On the other side, E-M. I actually have the piece of paper. I can share it with you and you can post it. And it basically outlined the responsibilities. So how did Baker approach it? He said, Ed, you take cabinet rank. I don't need that. Ed, you chair the policy committees. Ed, you sit in for the president when he's not present. And you chair this super cabinet committee. What I'll do for myself, I'll take the office of the chief of staff I'll control the scheduling and the communications and the legislation and the political affairs. And basically you do everything else. And so the next day, the Meese supporters- And, and he made Meese a cabinet level position, right? He had he kind did. of cabinet status. He had cabinet and Baker didn't take that. So the next day in the New York Times, Meese's people basically said, Meese clearly won this fight. If there's one person that's come out on top, it's Ed Meese. But Baker knew that he controlled the levels of power, levers of power, access to the president, the president's schedule, which is the most valuable asset in Washington, legislation, and even the office. His office is the only one with the big conference room in the West Wing. You've been there many times where you can have a morning staff meeting. And so Baker did that and was very effective. The other sign of confidence that Reagan created was he said, Baker, you, you pick. And lots of conservatives and lots of Californians were very, very unhappy with that. 
because he picked pragmatists like Dick Darman and Bob Kimmett and Dennis Ross, uh, Margaret Tutwiler, and they followed Baker wherever they went uh, to Treasury and then to state, except for Darman, who became OMB under, under Bush. And so there were lots of griping uh, during the whole first term of the Reagan administration that, that Baker had picked moderates and pragmatists as opposed to- um, oh, it, it reflects the two sides of, of, of President Reagan. He, had, he was able to create the Reagan coalition and, and, and was the leading voice in the conservative movement for decades prior to becoming president, but it was a president who was also committed to getting things done. And, you know, lots of famous Reagan quotes about, uh, you gotta get what you, what you can get, you know, don't let perfect be the enemy of good and, and the like, which certainly reflected the, the kind of modus operandi of someone like Jim Baker. Absolutely. And, you know, there's this great story that I actually talked to Baker about um, on my podcast called Transition Lab. We'll link to um, that, big promotion of that one. Okay, it's all about the interregnum. <laughs> and um, so a few, I can't remember the exact date, maybe April 30th, 1981, uh, Reagan shot. Right. And it was chaos. And Larry Speaks was doing a press briefing, trying to calm and project calm. Haig, who was Secretary of State, was not happy with the way that uh, Speaks was doing. He was, I think, upstairs or maybe downstairs. Right. He rushed into the press briefing room, kind of pushed Speaks off the stage and said, I'm in control. And there's a great anecdote in Peter Baker and Susan Glasser's book. Baker was at the hospital with Reagan and all this stuff was going on. And he came back in the afternoon his suit perfectly creased, no sweat, looking, you know, organized like James A. Baker III, and he established control. Um, and and of course, Haig, uh, you know, was still recovering from climbing up those stairs. He and came in the room up. sweaty, and you know, he just he he projected the lack of calm. And he forgot the law, which actually he wasn't third in line. <laughs> he wasn't fourth in line because I think it went. Yeah. The president, the vice president, the speaker of the house, the president pro tempore. And then the secretary of state. And then the secretary On of the state. basis of a law. Yeah, yeah. So it was like the contrast was so stark, certainly the way that the, the Baker biography uh, puts it out. There's another great anecdote that shows one of the strengths of Ronald Reagan and one of the differences today. So there was really only one person outside of Nancy that Baker led in, that Reagan led in his hospital room. You remember who that was? No. Tip O'Neill. Oh, right. Speaker of the House, Democratic Speaker of the House. They couldn't have disagreed more, but it was a time when Washington worked and they were friends. And he knew that he would beat Tip up during the day and then have a drink with him at night. And, and, and O'Neill was really shaken by it. And now, now you remind me of the story that one of the things I didn't know was, you know, no one really knew what, what Reagan's status was they didn't and, no. and and he came out of that room and it was worse than he assumed obviously Reagan had, uh, really had a, a great recovery but it, it reinforces your point that the speaker was allowed in to see the president um pretty early on before yeah, I think he was the only one yeah there was another senator I forget whom who, who, who broke in to see the president and he really pissed off Baker yeah they wouldn't let him in I can't remember who that was but they wouldn't let him in yeah 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 
Um, couple, a little bit more on the history of transitions and, and uh, uh, really good uh, color on, on, on Reagan and, and his leadership. Uh, let's go a little deeper in the past. What was the most dysfunctional kind of just, you know, the worst kind of transition? Was it, uh, was it Jackson uh, and, and, and Quincy Adams? Of all the, the history that you've looked into, what's the one that stands out as just a mess? Well, it has to be uh, Buchanan to Lincoln. That's the worst transition in history. So Lincoln is elected uh, during the four month interregnum, seven states secede, half the Buchanan cabinet basically dissolves, Buchanan's paralyzed, and Lincoln is halfway across the country, which could have been across the world. So the Congress is dysfunctional um, and Lincoln takes this train trip, which is memorialized in this wonderful book by Ted Widmer called Lincoln on the Verge. And Lincoln only gave one campaign speech. You didn't give speeches then, you kind of wrote. He gave one campaign speech during the whole campaign, but he took a 13 day train trip and he gave over a hundred speeches on the way to Washington. And that's essentially where Lincoln whistle found stop his voice. Tour? It was a whistle stop tour. He went up and down you know, to Cincinnati and to Buffalo and, I think he met um, or interacted with 10 past or future presidents on that trip. Wow. Um, and so basically the wheels came off during that uh, transition, during that interregnum. And that was the worst. The second worst was, I think- um, Wasn't there an assassination attempt? There was an, okay, so this, uh, there was Baltimore, an assassination right? attempt in Baltimore, yeah. which uh, the, the equivalent of the Secret Service found out about and Lincoln was in Harrisburg, uh, Pennsylvania at the governor's uh, house for dinner. And he quietly, so Lincoln had this special, it was called the special, which was a, a armored car, but there was a plot to uh, blow up a bridge, I think in Harvard de Grasse, I'm probably yeah. saying that wrong, but it's basically a bridge that, that is over one of the rivers between Baltimore and DC. So they, they wanna blow up the bridge as his train was going over. So what Lincoln did is he dressed in street clothes and essentially got on a commuter train with kind of a shawl over him, no top hat and snuck into Washington on an earlier train. Wow. And then he got to Washington, announced that he was there and the plot, the plotters then went away. So- um, That's pretty dysfunctional type of transition there. That was uh, bad. An interregnum not to be repeated. Sometimes so, history makes you feel better about the present, doesn't it? It does. There's some crazy stuff in history. Uh, so the second worst was Hoover to Roosevelt. Again, the yes. wheels came off. So, um, you know, we were in the Great Depression, but the Great Depression peaked during the four month interregnum. Um, so unemployment peaked. We had bank runs in 25 states. Hitler came to power and Hoover disdained Roosevelt. He thought he was weak in body and mind. And his idea of cooperation was to try to convince Roosevelt to abandon the New Deal and to adopt Rooseveltian uh, Hoover policies. So during the bank run, Hoover, I'm sorry, Roosevelt and the, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, Marinal Eccles, um, begged Hoover to put a bank holiday on, close the banks 
to protect people's savings and, and avoid a bank run. He, he would not do it. And in fact, there was an assassination attempt in Miami against Roosevelt where the mayor of Chicago was actually hit. And Hoover sent a, a nine page telegram to Roosevelt that theoretically was a condolence uh, communication, basically saying, I'm sorry, you know, but I'm glad you're safe. But there was, out of nine pages, there was only one line that basically said, I'm glad you're okay. The rest was basically a, a screed basically saying, just, just abandon the new deal and adopt my policy. It was very much, uh, it was personal and, and, and policy. I mean, people don't realize Absolutely. Hoover was a really popular, accomplished, almost national icon. He was. Until his presidency. And then, you know, for reasons you're, you're explaining, uh, you know, he's not remembered that way uh, because of his time in office. Yeah, I mean, he was a statesman. He was Commerce Secretary, obviously, and he also um, had a huge impact on on the war distribution effort, the post-war distribution effort. Um, and he was one of the most successful people in the country, one of the most famous people in the world, and was a disaster as president. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna move to our, our uh, lightning round on Reagan. Okay. This has been a, a wonderful uh, whirlwind tour through the mind of Dave Marchick from. Uh, Law. Uh, it's like a beautiful uh, mind. It's very scattered. So. It is business to. Uh, that's a, a that's a movie where they had a very scattered brain. But anyway, <laughs> uh, uh, but genius, uh, Nobel Nobel Prize winning genius. Um, but but before we go to the transit, we, we the word for talking about the, the spirit is interregnum, which you you masterfully included a number of times. The plural, of course, is either interregnums or interregna. Given that you are the a director of, of the Center for Presidential Transitions. What is your favorite form of the plural of interregnum? I have not thought about it. I have to think about that. We, my stumped, mom was we stumped a, you. My mom's a school teacher. And so if I give you the wrong answer, I will- uh, We'll, we'll, we'll post it. I, just so you know, you, you can't get this wrong because at least according to Webster's, you can uh, be reflecting on interregnums or interregna. I just want okay. to know what was the authoritative answer. But we'll, we'll get that another time. I'm sure people are gonna be on the edge of their seats waiting for uh, your preference. But uh, now we'll go to our presidential trend, uh, uh, lightning round here. Um, this is where we ask you for your favorite Reagan book, Reagan speech, uh, and or Reagan quotes. So give us all three, two, or only one if you have it. What do you got? So the, the book that is not about Reagan, but about a significant part of the Reagan period that I would recommend is Peter Baker and Susan Glasser's book on James Baker. A significant part of it takes place during the Reagan And I think it's the better part of the book, actually. The part I enjoyed most uh, was actually pre, uh, um, kind of up through the Reagan presidencies, but everything leading It's up incredible. There. And it just shows, you know, Reagan's influence on the Soviet Union, on the breakup, uh, on defense spending, on tax cuts, on the Plaza Accord. Uh, there's just so much uh, history and it's a really wonderful uh, book that I'd highly recommend. Um, you know, I, I Again, I love history. And so there's um, a wonderful podcast called It Was Said um, by uh, Meacham. And we wrote the great, did he write great, oh, he wrote a great biography of, of Bush, Bush 41. 40, 41, yeah. yeah. It's really a wonderful book. And he focuses on uh, Reagan's farewell address, which is really a wonderful address. And I think contrasts with this time. And I just, you know, Peggy Noonan wrote it, and it basically was, it talked about the city on the hill. It acknowledged his regrets, including the deficit. Right. 
it talked about how the presidency separates the president from the people and how he would be in an armored car separated by thick glass from from kids that were waving and wanting to touch and see the president. And he hated that part of the presidency. And then he closes by talking about his vision of the city on the hill. And, you know, he basically said that his view was that it was built on rocks, so it was strong, windswept, God blessed, teeming with people of all kinds, living in harmony and peace. And if there were city walls, the walls had doors, but the doors were open for anyone with the will and heart to get to the United States. And I think that gets back to Reaganism and also to, I think, the core of the Republican Party, which has been to be a more open party. And I think that's being challenged right now. Um, and so to me, that speech is really a fascinating, wonderful speech and uh, reflects and contrasts with, with today. Uh, Dave Marchick, uh, what a wonderful way to end this really enjoyable discussion. Uh, we look forward to having you back on the show. Uh, I'd love to do it in person where you can come to the Reagan Institute, our new offices uh, across the street from the White House where prominently displayed is the quote you just shared with us. Really? Wow, okay. Well, we can do that and then go to a girls basketball game and, and cheer your daughters on. <laughs> I look forward to it. Dave Marchick, thanks so much. Be well. Thanks for having me.